taste and see. We read last week from Psalm 34, and we read about how David offers that incredible invitation where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, Now, unfortunately, that is easier said than done. You see, many of us would love to taste of the goodness of the Lord. Most of us have probably asked at various times that the Lord would show us some goodness so that we can taste it. But to a certain extent, sometimes we cannot because in a spiritual sense, we have damaged taste buds. We talked about how it's kind of like when somebody smokes for years on end, what happens is it damages their, their ability to taste food. It damages their taste buds and dulls their sense of taste and their tongues are singed. And in the same way, in a spiritual sense, our souls have been singed by sin. We've been playing for, with fire for so long that it has uh, damaged our ability to recognize the goodness of God and, and to taste it. And we have to ask him to repair our spiritual sense of taste. There's not a shortage of God's goodness. There's just a blockage on our end in experiencing it. So we talked about last week how God can repair that damage as we pursue him more and more. And that the less we're filling ourselves with junk, the more we're filling ourselves with his goodness, the more we will be able to acquire a taste for what is pure and what is holy. So today, we'll look at one of the reasons why doing that can be so difficult. It's not about inability so much. It is about desire. Simply put, we have a desire problem. And that desire problem also has a tremendous effect on our perspective. And our perspective has a tremendous effect on our actions. Have you ever walked or driven or or rode your bike past a house and there's a dog in the front yard and the dog in the front yard is staring at you, staring you down as you approach the property and and perhaps it sees you and it starts to bark and as you drive by or you walk by, that dog is running along the perimeter of the yard. It's matching your pace and you're thinking to yourself, this dog is going to attack me. This dog is going to get me. But then, for some reason, the dog doesn't. The dog stays in the yard. Something held it back. Something has kept that dog from chasing you down and probably licking you to death. Maybe it was good training. Or maybe it was an invisible fence. In the early 1970s, there was a guy named Richard Peck... Uh, He worked as a traveling salesman in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And during his daily travels through the, the neighborhoods, he saw something that troubled him. He saw the number of dogs and cats and other pets that were injured or killed because they had run out into the street to chase cars. And so he, he was burdened by this and decided he wanted to come up with a solution. He was a dog lover and also an avid tinkerer. So together with one of his associates, who just so happened to be an electrical engineer, uh, he came up with an innovative solution to this epidemic. First, there would be a transmitter, and the transmitter is placed inside a homeowner's house. Then there would be a receiver, and this receiver would be fastened to the dog's collar. 
Finally, there would be an electrical wire that was buried in the ground around the perimeter of the owner's property. That transmitter that's inside the house sends a signal at a specific frequency to the wire that is around the property that uh, is then transmitted all around that perimeter. And if the receiver ever crosses over the boundary of that wire, a small electrical shock is delivered to the wearer. Um, For you animal lovers out there, Peck made sure that this electric shock did no short-term or long-term damage to the animals, okay? He, he, as he was working through this, he partnered with the uh, veterinary school at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, they made sure that there's no, you know, harmful effects of this little shock. Um, This is neither here nor there, uh, but have any of you ever maybe worn or played with uh, a shock collar? Yeah, I haven't either. Um, that was just a straw poll that I'm taking for no reason. Um, moving on. Uh, so as the 70s transitioned into the 80s, uh, housing develops began rapidly springing up in a time known as the suburban sprawl. And most of these communities had HOAs, uh, homeowners associations, that had very specific rules about not building fences. And so Peck's invention of the invisible fence provided an ideal solution to this problem. See, after after, uh, experiencing a few shocks, a dog would quickly learn where the boundary was. They would quickly learn how far they could go without getting zapped. And most dogs would go as close to that line as possible without crossing. Though you have the occasional dog who's too dumb and continues (laughs) to go there. But most of the time, this invisible barrier would keep a dog contained. Even as something that's just outside of the boundary line tempts them and beckons them, and there you will find this dog sitting at the edge of the boundary, whimpering and whining, wishing that they could just take this receiver off so that they could go and chase the squirrel. As bad as the dog wants to get out, it knows that it's not worth the pain of trespassing that limit. That, my friends, is very often how we see the Word of God. We often view the Bible, our faith, even even God himself, as being an invisible fence. There's things outside the fence in life that we really want badly, but we can't have them. See, because God won't let us. We don't want to get zapped, so we obey. We follow the rule. We don't go after the thing. We just sit as close to the line as we possibly can, staring longingly and whimpering, wishing that we could go beyond the barrier. In his book, Killing Kryptonite, author John Bevere says that a person who does this is someone who is restricted by the word of God rather than it being his or her delight. This person sees God's word as constraining or binding, which is the antithesis of the psalmist's words in Psalm 40, verse 8, where David says, I take joy in doing your will, my God, 
for your instructions are written on my heart. So in essence, this person states, I want to do X, Y, or Z, but God's word won't let me. And hopefully you caught the difference there. In Psalm 40, verse 8, David says, I delight to do your will. And then you have this person who is restrained by the invisible fence of it. In both cases, there is obedience. In both cases, there is following the rule. But the difference boils down to obedience because of obligation and obedience because of delight. And the difference between those two boils down to a matter of desire and perspective. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we see the boundaries that are placed on us in the scriptures as an invisible fence? Or do we see them as a sanctuary? On October 25th, 2018, there is a church in the Netherlands called Bethel Church. And they began that day to do something very extreme. See, the pastor of this church learned that there was a local family from Armenia that was about to be deported. That family was in the Netherlands on political asylum, and so their impending deportation was a matter of uh, great consternation. And so he decided that he wanted to do something about it. This family has three teenagers, all of whom have now uh, begun to call the Netherlands their home. And they also knew that if their family was extradited, it would uh, bring great danger to their father because his political activism had gotten them uh, asylum in the Netherlands in the first place. So after this family exhausted all of the ideas that they could afford, they were out of options. And that is when the pastor of this Bethel church stepped in. He offered them literal sanctuary inside the church and started a worship service see in the netherlands there's this law it's against the law for police or any other authorities to raid a church while a church service is in progress and so pastor alex wick vowed that he would hold a church service that did not stop until this family was granted permanent asylum So, while there was a legal team that was fighting the battle in the courts, Bethel Church held a continuous 24 hours a day worship service around the clock for 97 consecutive days. Over 800 clergy members from over 20 different denominations around the country volunteered to be in the various slots throughout the day in order to keep this service going. And so it did not stop for over 2,300 hours. And y'all thought, I preached a long time. (laughs) At last, on January 31st of 2019, this year, amnesty was granted, not only to the family that was there in the sanctuary, but also to 600 other families in the country who faced a similar situation. Now, I don't know if you've noticed that I keep saying the family. Uh, The reason why... That's the case is because I have no hope of pronouncing their name correctly. But in a sense, this family was trapped inside the walls of this church for over three months. 
But do you think this family felt imprisoned or protected? Were the walls of this church a fence or was it a refuge? It's all about perspective. It's all about desire. Today we're going to look at a passage that many of us probably know very well. But quite possibly, we've never seen ourselves reflected in it. And today, I hope we do. So, hopefully by now you have found Genesis chapter 4. If you have not, start at the cover and turn right. You'll be there in about a page. Um, Josh, would you mind bringing the the full lights up, if you don't mind? Uh, Genesis chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. Um, Beginning in verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering. But for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, East of Eden. So let's uh, first set up some context of where we find ourselves in the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 God creates the universe and everything in it. At the end of that creation week, He creates Adam and Eve and He sets them in the Garden of Eden and they enjoy perfect relationship with God and a perfect earth to enjoy and call their home. Then, after that, we get to Genesis chapter 3, simply known as the fall. And in order to understand what really happened in Genesis chapter 3, we kind of have to understand what led up to it, what led up to their creation. You see, when God created mankind, it wasn't out of a matter of need, God did not need to create anyone else for relationship because he in himself is already complete. See, this is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so vitally important. 
Because by being three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God in himself is love. He is, between these three members of the Godhead, he is actually relationship. He is the essence of intimacy and connection and friendship and and closeness. He is, in himself, complete. And this doctrine makes our God entirely unique from any other conception of God. You see, every other deity is needy. Every other deity is incomplete. Prior to creating people, every other deity had the potential to love. They, they had the potential to show authority. They, they had the potential to display their attributes. But they needed to create something in order to display those things or to relate to anyone else. But God is not needy in that way. God is complete. But out of an outpouring of that love, he creates mankind for the purpose of inviting us in to enjoy that relationship that the Godhead shares. And what that was, please understand, was an invitation. See, any real relationship is not one that is forced. Any real relationship requires reciprocation. Love is a choice. It is a decision. If I were to kidnap someone and tie them to a chair in my house and say, we're married now, that wouldn't really make a marriage. Now, let me also be clear, that's not what happened with Allison, okay? She is somehow here by her own choosing and chooses to remain thus far. But she can escape whenever she wants. Okay. <laughs> the point is, choice is required for relationship to exist. So, God created man with the capacity to choose. And in Genesis chapter 3, they make a very bad choice. Satan, who, an angel with a choice that he made himself, tempts them to turn their backs on God. He, he essentially says to them, God is holding out on you, you know. God doesn't really want what's best for you. He wants to limit you. I want you to have your best life now. You can be your own ruler. You can be your own authority. Be your own God, like me. Eat this fruit, even though God told you not to. And in making that choice, Adam and Eve broke everything. By by stiff-arming God, what they were saying was, we want to do this without you. And so they themselves from the source of life. Speaking of the source of life, looks like I need some new batteries. That was not on purpose, okay? Am I alive? How about that? Perfect timing. So they unplugged themselves from the source of life. And doing so, naturally, by uh, logical consequence, brought death. 
But that doesn't mean that God just gave up on them and and let them walk away. Just the opposite. God loved them too much to reject them. And so, even as he hands down a punishment for their sin, in Genesis 3.15, he speaks this incredible word of prophecy. He tells the serpent that Eve's offspring will be a savior who will defeat Satan and pay the price for sin. And at that point, God covers their sin with a sacrifice and sends them out from the garden. And that is where we pick up in Genesis chapter 4. And as you can see, things have gone from bad to worse. We have here the first murder. The beginning of violence and war. And it began with misplaced desire. If you're taking notes, here is point number one. Obligations are like fences, but joyous obedience is like a sanctuary. Obligations are like fences, but joyous obedience is like a sanctuary. Now, whenever we read passages of Scripture like this, we we have to examine it from as many angles as we can. There's obviously a lot here that requires us to read between the lines. Now, that doesn't mean that we just fill in the blanks with whatever we want so that we can make the passage say whatever we want. It means that we have to reasonably and sensibly interpret what isn't written through the framework of what actually is written. So here's a few things that we can know and a few things that we can reasonably assume from what is written. Adam and Eve are now living outside the garden. They have their firstborn son. And they name him Cain. A little bit later in the sermon, we'll talk about why his name is important. At some point later, we don't know how long transpires here, but at some point later, they have another son named Abel. And again, later we'll talk about why that is important. In the next chapter, if we were to read Genesis 5, we would learn that Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters that are not named. Over the course of a very long life, uh, 930 years to be exact. So you can imagine how many children one might have in 930 years. Before the service, we were just talking about the size of some of our families. My grandmother is one of 17, and her parents died before they turned 100. So, in 930 years, this is probably the uber-duggers. But this story uh, features only two of those children, Cain and Abel. We know that by the time this story takes place, there had to have already been a system of worship uh, that involved bringing offerings to God. We know that God himself instituted uh, this in chapter 3 verse 21 by making an animal sacrifice to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. So after that, we can reasonably assume that further instructions are given, a system is uh, in place, and Cain and Abel fully understand how it works. And so we find them bringing offerings to God. We read that Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. And both of these guys bring sacrifices to the Lord from their respective livelihoods. But Abel's sacrifice is accepted... Cain's sacrifice is not. And so we have to ask the question, why? 
because one was offered out of joy, the other was offered out of obligation. Let's look at verses 3 through 5 one more time. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So the text tells us that Abel specifically brought the firstborn and the fat portions. Cain, on the other hand, it just says brought an offering. What we have here is an intentional contrast that's given to us. Cain, it says, just brought something. Abel, it says, brought the first and the best. Cain brought anything that he could grab. Abel brought the very best of what he had been given. He made a real sacrifice out of the overflow. He he said God is going to have the first and the best, whereas Cain said God is just going to have something. What this tells us is that Cain was constrained to obey. He knew that he couldn't just not bring an offering. The law constrained him. He felt obligated. And so he brings God this half-hearted offering. While Abel brought the very best, the cream of the crop, he brought his offering to the Lord with joy. But Cain saw the requirements on him like an invisible fence. He, He couldn't take the receiver off his neck, so he couldn't help but just be obedient. He was obligated to stay within the bounds of the constraints that God had put upon him. Verse 5 tells us a little bit more about the attitude of his heart. It says, Cain was very angry and his face fell. He's very angry and his face fell. Or his face in your translation might be, his face was downcast. So he's coming to the Lord and he's saying, I I did what you wanted, God. I did what you wanted. I could have kept this for myself, but I brought it to you like you asked me to. This is obedience that is out of obligation. And the thing is, God is not interested in that kind of obedience. Any more than you would be interested in your husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whomever, if they begrudgingly expressed their faithfulness to you half-heartedly, even after you maybe found pictures of someone else on their phone. And, and, and what if they said to you, well, listen... I'm not cheating on you, okay? I'm not sleeping with other people because that's what you want, right? You, do, you don't want me hanging out with other girls, so here I am every friggin' night. You happy? How, how would you respond in that situation? With delight? Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're faithful. No, you would say, no one is forcing you to stay. Get out. I do not want you here. Notice in verse 7 that God responds to him with grace. He, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This tells us that Cain knew how to do well. He knew what God meant when he says, if you do the right thing, won't it be accepted? He knows full well what the right thing is. And he knows full well that his offering is not that. 
He was just trying to do the bare minimum, just enough, follow the law and get on with my life. And God confronts him and says, you know what's right. And if you do what's right, you'll be good. God is not interested in begrudging obedience. There's a passage in Psalm 51 that is uh, not on the PowerPoint. Uh, My fault, by the way. Um, In Psalm 51, David has been found out in his sin and, and he's repenting. And he says in verses 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, David is saying, I can't just bring you an offering out of obligation unless my heart is in the right place. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And again, I want to reiterate that this is an invitation. This is an invitation to see that God has not put us inside an invisible fence. He's offered us a sanctuary. He laid down his life so that we can be brought from death to life. He's given us grace upon grace. He's showered us with love and then gotten down on one knee to offer us an eternity of blissful union. And he promises to be faithful to us and just asks that we be faithful to him. And when we see it like that, the restrictions of God's word are are not like an invisible fence. They're like a sanctuary that protects us from the threat of the enemy. And God actually points out this threat to Cain in verse 7. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And then he goes, and if you don't do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God gives him this warning. He says, Cain, you you know what's right. And I'm telling you, there's an enemy crouching waiting to pounce if you don't. He's saying sin is waiting to pounce and destroy you. I am trying to protect you from that. He very well could have looked down at this moment and said, Don't you remember what happened to your parents in the garden? Remember how sin made them this enticing offer and they walked right into the trap? Remember how they've told you about how perfect everything used to be, how everything used to be without pain, and how much they wish they could go back to that if only they didn't fall prey to the lies of sin. I'm trying to protect you from that, son. Don't make the same mistake. This is what God could have said to Cain in this moment. But, but Cain didn't see it that way. He, he saw what God asked of him as constraint, offense. Abel, on the other hand, saw what God offered and it filled him with joy. He, he was overjoyed that God loved him so much. So he brought to God the best that he had. Say someone asked you to be their significant other. Um, and they said to you, listen, uh, every so often, uh, I'll let you get something cheap out of the cupboard to make for yourself. Um, I'm gonna spend time with you when it's convenient for me. Uh, maybe sometimes I'll even go on a cheap date with you. Would that entice you (laughs) at all? Or would you be like, uh, nah, no thanks. 
course. But if someone said to you, gosh, I just love you so much, and I, I, want, to, I want us together to enjoy the best of everything in this life together, that would be a more enticing offer. That would get your attention. This is how Abel viewed God and, and, and vice versa. He had complete faith in what God said. And I'm not just making that up. I'm not just inserting that into the text because this is actually written later on in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the author makes this clear distinction by saying, By faith, Abel Abel brought a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain did. This is in Hebrews 11, 4. By faith, Abel, Abel brought a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain did. So Abel brought his offering by faith. Cain did not bring his offering by faith. And if not faith, then what? Obligation. So ask yourself, where do I fall in this? How do you personally view the offer of God and his invitation to sanctuary you? Where are you at in your mind? It's possible, perhaps, Your perspective may be flawed. Perhaps your perspective is being influenced by something deeper within your heart. Point number two. Outward actions come from inward places. Outward actions come from inward places. I want us to look again at verses four and five and see something here that's very easy to miss. Uh, Something, in fact, that I had never noticed until this week when I was studying this passage. Uh, Verse number 4 and 5 reads again, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now we've already established that Cain brought his offering out of obligation. That Abel brought his sacrifice out of joy. We've established that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and he did not accept Cain's. But perhaps what you did not notice is that the sacrifices were not the only things that God accepted or did not accept. It, It doesn't just say God had no regard for Cain's offering. It says, he had no regard for Cain and his offering. Same is true with Abel. It says, God had regard for Abel and his offering. Now, why is that an important distinction? It's important because it tells us that God knows our hearts. He knows our motivations. He knows our true selves. So even if what we're doing on the outside is good, if it's a facade, he can see straight through it. See, many of us have been taught that religion is what is important to God. That there's a prescribed set of rituals that we need to perform and that as long as we do them, God will be happy. Follow these rules. Do this, not that. Obey in these specific ways. Pray using these words. And as long as you do that well enough, consistently enough, and enthusiastically enough, God will look down from heaven. He'll put down the lightning bolt that he's holding in his fist. He'll give you a cursory nod. 
and he'll tell St. Peter to open the front door to heaven to let you in. But that is not true at all. Remember what we read in Psalm 51. God does not delight in sacrifices just for the sake of sacrifices. What he wants is a heart that is offered to him in love. What he desires is to have a heart that is seeking to be purified by his grace. What he desires is a heart that wants to turn away from sin and give itself completely to him. Going back to the same analogy of marriage, imagine if you could read your spouse's mind or your boyfriend or girlfriend's mind. A truly terrifying thought, right? (laughs) Terrifying. But imagine you could read their mind. And as you read their mind, you discover that their faithfulness to you is only skin deep. That outwardly, they do all the things that a married person does. But inwardly, all they want is to be with someone else. To be free of you. Imagine if you discovered that they didn't really love you. They're just stuck with you. How would you feel? You would feel heartbroken. You'd be, you'd be crushed, you'd be shattered, and rightly so. And if you were to have a conversation with a friend about what you had discovered, and you say to them, I was reading my spouse's mind, and they're like, what? You were doing what? And this is what I found out. Imagine if that friend looked at you and said, well, you know, they do all the right stuff on the outside. That's, that's good enough, Right? Count your blessings. At least they're not doing bad stuff. No, no friend would do that. You'd look at this so-called friend and maybe cuss them out. Because what you want is your spouse's heart. And rightly so. You should expect that. The same is true with God. He, He doesn't want outward allegiance God doesn't want empty rituals. He he doesn't want rules being followed just for the sake of rules being followed. What he desires is our hearts. And rightly so. Now, that doesn't mean that the outward stuff doesn't matter at all. That the outward action is just uh, ancillary. The, The outward stuff matters. Just like it wouldn't make sense for a husband to say to his wife, Babe, I really love you from the bottom of my heart. And I know I never show it outwardly. And I never do anything that would make you think that I'm faithful or never do anything to serve you. But just trust me, down deep, it's all you, girl. (laughs) No one would accept that. In the same way, it wouldn't make any sense for us to say to God, Trust me, God, I love you. I never show it with any sort of obedience or faithfulness to your word or doing the things that you've said, but you're my homeboy, Jesus. The outward things matter, but only as much as they're coming from the right place. Point number three, the posture of the heart is determined by who sits on its throne. The posture of the heart is determined by who sits on its throne. There's a quote by a theologian named A.W. Tozer that perfectly illustrates what our hearts look like. He says this, 
In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. And if he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. In other words, he's saying that every person must decide who is going to be in charge of their life, themselves or God. Am I going to invite God to be a part of my life like a spiritual homeboy who will save me from my sins while I make all the rules for how I live or how I'm uh, going to give myself to Jesus? Or do I choose to let Jesus be Lord? Uh, I said earlier that we would look at the significance of the names Cain and Abel. Now, I readily admit that what I'm about to tell you is a bit of conjecture based on the study of uh, commentaries and uh, scholars. And, and this, isn't, this isn't explicitly written. Okay? But I think that this conjecture is warranted based upon the context. Remember, we mentioned that in Genesis 3, God had spoken this word of prophecy declaring to the serpent that he would not be victorious. And the reason he wouldn't be victorious is that from Eve's offspring, there will come a savior who will defeat the serpent and restore what was broken. But what God didn't say in Genesis 3 was when that would happen and who that offspring would be. Is it who or whom? Someone help me here. Who Okay, thank you. College. He doesn't say who the offspring would be. Now, of course, we have the whole story. We have the benefit of the entire Bible. We know the answer to that question is Jesus. We know that when he speaks of the woman's offspring in Genesis 3.15, he's referring to Christ. But Eve, in Genesis chapter 4, at this time, does not yet Know that. So when we get into Genesis 4 and the birth of these two sons, a clue is given to us about what Eve might have been thinking. A number of scholars look at the names that were given to these two sons as an inside look at the heart of their mother, Eve. See, in this particular time in history, names were not just given without purpose. A name represented what a parent believed about their child. This is true in in cultures today in various parts of the world as well. Parents believe something about their children and they put that in their name. And so what we have here, when Cain is born, it says in verse 1, Adam knew his wife And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She says, I've gotten. 
Now, the Hebrew word for Cain is kayin, and that word means to get, to acquire, to possess. It refers to getting something, gaining something. And then she qualifies that statement by saying, with the help of the Lord. So in naming this child, she is literally saying, God helped me get this. Now, that could be as simple as saying, God helped me get a son. But it is also possible that Eve assumed that this child would be the one to fulfill the prophecy about salvation that God had spoken a chapter earlier. So it's possible that that she was naming him the way that she did because she was saying, God made a promise, and now with his help, I've gotten it. We don't know how much time passes between Cain's birth and Abel's birth. His name means transient vapor, which means that by the time Abel is born, Eve's perspective has changed somehow. The hope that she had in the birth of her firstborn has been replaced by realism with the birth of this son. She certainly doesn't view Abel as the chosen one. So what does this have to do with us? Well, if this bit of conjecture is true, it probably means that Cain grew up with a bit of arrogance. Cain probably viewed himself as the one upon whom all hope rested. And that view of himself makes sense when we consider what happens in the rest of this passage. I mean, here's the thing. Many of us have probably experienced sibling rivalry. Okay? If you have siblings, you know what it's like to have sibling rivalry. But, have any of you ever come close to murdering your sibling because you're jealous of them? I have punched my siblings Many times. When I was a child, that was one of my favorite things to do. Punch my brothers in the face. I was a jerk. Uh, But I never came close to killing one of them. I probably joked about it. But I never came close to doing that. What could have made Cain so upset that he decided to end his brother's life? It had to be something more than jealousy. It had to be more than rivalry. It had to be something deeper. Something that's revealed when God says to him, I've accepted Abel and his sacrifice, but not you and yours. Maybe it was something like a threat to Cain's kingdom and the throne in his heart. See, Cain was not interested in submitting himself to God. Cain was only interested in being the chosen one. He wasn't interested in kneeling before God and offering his best. He was interested in being viewed as best and having others kneel before him. He wasn't interested in God's name. He was interested in his own. And when God rejected that and accepted Abel instead, Cain saw a threat to everything that he thought he was supposed to be. And so, he eliminated that threat. My friends, 
if we are unwilling to allow God to sit on the throne of our hearts, we will go to extreme lengths to protect our own kingdom. Now, more than likely for most of us, that will probably not be murder. Hopefully, (laughs) it will not be murder. But it will be forms of selfishness, self-centeredness, pride, fear, arrogance. The list goes on and on. And maybe, maybe it won't even seem like an aggressive thing. Maybe it'll seem really innocent. Maybe it'll look like, I have this plan for my life. I've written out how it's supposed to be. But when anything threatens to change that plan, and I feel like I'm losing control, I freak out. Whatever the outward response is, the inward posture is the same. That posture says, I am on the throne, and I will pursue what I think is best, instead of pursuing what God says is best. But that will not result in a satisfied, fulfilled purpose-filled life. It will result in selfish isolation. And if we continue to read in in Genesis chapter 4, we find that that's exactly where Cain ends up. And though he ends up fathering a line of people, ultimately his entire line would be wiped out only two chapters later. But it doesn't have to be that way. Praise God, it doesn't have to be that way. Final point, point number four. Even in our rebellion, God offers us grace. That is the beauty of the gospel. Even when we're far away, even when we fail and fall, even when we bring to God a selfish offering, he still responds to us with a loving invitation. Look again at verses 6 and 7. After Cain brings this half-hearted offering, the Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, will you not be accepted? See, God's response to Cain wasn't with a lightning bolt. It wasn't with a fist or a hammer waiting to come down on him for how dare you? Explosion noises. That's not what happened. God responds by saying, Cain, why are you upset? Don't you know that the same thing I'm offering Abel, I offered to you too? It's not that I'm rejecting you because of you. I'm rejecting what you're bringing to me in your heart and on the outside. But he says, if you do well, if you do what's right, if you, if you accept the offer, don't you know that you will be accepted? He, he says that explicitly. Don't you know that the same acceptance is offered to you? Cain is not going to be the chosen one. Cain's not going to be the Savior, but the Savior is coming. And that Savior is going to pay the penalty for the sin. Cain rejects God's offer of grace. Cain thought that in order to have what he really wanted, he needed to kill his brother. 
But God says, in order to have the life that you want, I'll lay my life down for you. God says to Cain in this passage, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. But God says to us, the voice of my blood speaks a better word. And it is crying out to you from the cross. Come and be rescued. God offers to every single one of us an invitation. Not to be locked inside an invisible fence where if you screw up and get too close to the boundary, you get zapped. That's not what he offers. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you this locked cage and what you really want is going to be out here, but you can't have it. You've got to follow the rules. He offers us a sanctuary. A sanctuary where he promises to protect us from an enemy crouching at the door waiting to imprison us. And he doesn't want us to respond to this offer with religious platitudes, with a commitment to work harder at the rituals, commitment to just bring better offerings. He wants us to respond to this offer with With faith. He says the same words to us that he spoke to Cain. Why are you upset? Don't you know that if you do well, if you bring me your faith, you too will be accepted? That choice, my friends, is yours. Will you reject it completely? Will your choice be to obey out of obligation? Or will it be to respond in faith? I urge you to deeply consider what the answer to that question will be. To deeply consider where are my desires and my perspectives actually leading me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the offer of salvation. Thank you that you offer to sanctuary us. Thank you that you offer to give us grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy and love upon love, even though what we bring to you so often is half-hearted garbage. Thank you that you never give up on us. That there's not a single one of us who is too far away or done too many bad things or fill in the blank. That even to a murderer you offer grace. God, I pray that every single one of us would come to a place where we lay down at your feet these wrong desires. God, I pray that if there are any here or any watching online or listening to the podcast that have never come to a place where they've said, I want to accept the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ by allowing him to be Lord and receiving the free gift of salvation. Lord, let tonight be the night that that takes place. Lord, that as all of us deeply consider where our hearts lie, where our desires are, what our perspectives show us, that you would reveal the truth to us. And if that you reveal that there are ways that we need to submit to you, Lord, I pray that we would. 
that you would give us a heart of surrender. Lord, that we would come to your altar willing to lay down anything that stands in the way. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Josh will play our closing song.